Hi and welcome to Contourcast. My name's Kat Boyd and I'm joined as ever with my lovely co-host David Jameson. How's it going? It's going fine. Um, we've got a special guest on today's pod. Um, we're joined by uh, Labour stalwart MSP Neil Finlay. Um, hi doing? Neil. Hey, how are you? Um, all right, yeah. How's your lockdown been? Yeah, it's pretty shit to be honest with you. It's, it has its moments. Some sometimes you kind of feel it's quite good for you know, but I think for, for for different reasons. You know, some of it, you know, kind of family stuffs can be quite good, quite different, and how you've just kind of done things and trundled along as normal in, in everyday life and. And other times it's just crap. And I think I think the novelty of I think the novelty of banana loafs and Zoom quizzes is long worn off. And I think people <laughs> that think, seems like a long time yeah, ago. And I think it's more a more of a bit of grind. And you know, there's only so much of um, compilations of crap TV shows that they've glued together to try and string out the TV schedules that you can watch. So Aye. plus it was fine. During summer, you know, that was that was okay. We've all got a bit of respite, but heading to the change of the clocks and the monkey sort of autumn, it's always maybe a bit of dread. Uh, yeah, I am I am definitely on board with that feeling. I've I'm actually like recording today from my 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 cupboard, right? So I'm calling it the broom cupboard, like I'm I'm Andy Peters or something doing children's telly. <laughs> of course it's the zoom cupboard why didn't i think of that um yeah so this is the cupboard in my living room which i've converted into a tiny little office um it feels a little bit like a it feels a little bit like a chain some sort of weird chamber i do feel it's a bit carceral um but it's uh suiting my mood at the moment well, I'm, usually, I'm usually in the shed in the garden but uh i've managed to <laughs> take the living room by storm tonight so good stuff good stuff um, i do you do you folks think that like so there was an interesting piece in the guardian by devi shrita saying that the second wave of lockdown has been only has only been made necessary by the failure basically of the state to to come up with like the infrastructure with the test and tracing and all that kind of stuff and that she reckons, as someone who is a pragmatic supporter of lockdown, that it's going to test public sympathy to break in point, basically. 100%. Um, I was um, speaking to uh, Debbie Schroeder at the very beginning uh, of this because I thought she was saying some really interesting things and, uh, and, and things that were really running contrary to what was the government was doing. Um, and, you know... As they did, they then brought her in, inside, you know, partly to get her uh, view and her expertise, but I think partly also to keep her a bit quiet. Now, now she hasn't, she doesn't keep that quiet, but but I think um, that was part of the tactic. Um, I think she's been very good during the uh, uh, lockdown. Um, at the beginning, um, I was pulling my hair out, and I, I was almost screaming this out my window. Uh, at the house um, where the World Health Organization said at the very beginning, about you know a month before lockdown, 
test, trace and isolate, go after every case, track it down, isolate it and eradicate every case. That was their advice to us. And we absolutely ignored that, totally ignored that. And on the last, about the last week before Parliament um, broke up, or, or got locked down, sorry, um, they had a session with um, Jason Leach and the, uh, the former Chief Medical Officer. And I got the last question to, to Jason Leach and I asked them why they were ignoring the World Health Organization to test, trace and isolate. Um, and he, he gave an answer and I was shaking my head when, when he was answering. And he says, why are you shaking your head, Mr. Finlay? I said, I'm shaking my head because I 100% disagree with you. I disagree with you. And what was clear at that point is that they wanted to do I heard the immunity approach. I mean, that was quite clear. That was the that was Jason Leach's point of view at that time. They uh, they made a whole series of mistakes at the beginning, uh, pretty pretty big ones, and clearly the testing system had not even been really on the radar. You know, they were starting from such a low mark. So I think the failure. I think she's absolutely right. The failure at the beginning to follow that test, trace, and isolate approach. Uh, the chickens have very much come home to roost. And, um, you know, Debbie was one who said, and I'll pick her up in this, and I have done, that um, in the summer, um, Scotland looks as it's going to be eradicating uh, COVID. Mm. Well, not quite. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know if you've uh, had the pleasure of listening to any of our other podcasts, but we've been quite critical of the lockdown approach generally like we're not we're not anti-maskers we're not anti-lockdowners but the we had a discussion quite early on in the days of the pandemic with a comrade who was living in China at the time and he was talking about what what the most important thing for Britain for Scotland for Europe generally to learn from the Chinese approach is not about authoritarianism. It's not the locking down. It's not the locking down and lifting and locking down and lifting. It was the fact that when the lockdown happened, every case was followed up. There was like a big effort in testing and tracing. And that is actually how you eradicate the disease. So it's the same as the World Health Organization. I mean, to be honest, we were always going to be in the situation where lockdown had to happen because Britain does not, Britain and Scotland including that, does not have the infrastructure to deal with a pandemic like this. We don't have the healthcare infrastructure. We don't have the technological infrastructure. We don't have the public services that we could and should have to be able to deal with this. So we're always going to end up in a lockdown situation, but we should never be at the point that we are now um, because we should actually have had the ability to test and and trace and isolate and it's, it's just not happening in the manner that it needs that it needs to no and the, and the i mean the, the, there's so many things across the piece you know we were told that and um, for example that we didn't need to shut schools the old firm game could go ahead we had the nike conference debacle you know with all of that that went on um, you know masks are not effective don't bother wearing a mask Suddenly it's, oh, let's get the masks out. Um, you know, it just became, if you go back and look at some of the things that were said at the beginning, they all had to be turned around completely in the opposite direction. Is it any wonder that people are confused and, and, and don't know what's going on and then become cynical 
and uh, and you know, it just as depressing. But I think the uh, the comment about this testing, I think, it, did you say it, testing the public's tolerance or something like that, David? I think is absolutely right. People are at breaking point. They are just, they are on, you know, on the precipice of saying, you know, fuck it. Yeah. I've done my bit. I've done enough. I've tried my best. And, uh, you know, for a whole number of reasons, not just self-interest reasons about, oh, I can't go for a pint anymore which in itself is not an unimportant thing in terms of people's social lives and social cohesion. A lot of people get their support and get their, their friendships from people they meet in the pub, and as opposed to people they meet in an art gallery or a library or whatever. Certainly in my community, a lot of people, that's their social um, support system is people they meet on, a, on, a, on an event like that and in a place like that. And that ain't no bad thing because, you know, there's a lot of... Uh, people, older people or whoever, who, who you get a lot of wisdom from and a lot of support and a lot of help. Um, but for a whole number of other reasons, people's mental health and well-being is just a, 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 you know, a critical thing. The whole drug situation where I think once the, the, the veil is lifted on what's been going on during lockdown, I think that will be an absolute catastrophe um, when we see the amount of people who have uh, either died or who have not been being treated during that. So there's a whole, there's a, there's a whole number of things. Um, but I do think people are kind of on the precipice of just saying, oh, sorry, yeah, this, is, this is, I don't know, I'm a story. I mean, I've been, we, me and David were talking just the other day about these new lockdown measures. It's kind of like halfway house lockdown measures that have been introduced. And like, to me, I mean, I think that they are really unpopular. Neil, I actually saw a really interesting thing that I think you put on Twitter which was you'd done your own poll about the popularity of the lockdown measures and on Twitter they were overwhelmingly supported and on Facebook overwhelmingly opposed and maybe that told us something about the class composition of those two social media platforms. Absolutely, it was almost, you know, the polar opposite. It was like, I think, 70-30 on Twitter and like 66-33 on Facebook. And I I think that does tell us uh, something. I noticed this a lot. I noticed this a lot during, I was raving about this the other night because it was one of the most egregious examples of how the media often fails like working class people. But I don't know if you saw these protests um, the other night when the new measures were introduced, pubs dumping their ice and so on. Now, um, if if that was a protest by workers, who are afraid of losing their jobs. I'm very interested in that as a phenomenon because frankly, I'd support almost any protest by workers worried about losing their jobs, given that in the next few weeks, we're expecting a huge spike in unemployment. I suspect that what it really was, was a business lobbying operation. Um, And the newspapers hadn't bothered to ask anyone. They hadn't bothered to ask any of the workers who were dumping the ice if they had been told to do this by their bosses or, I mean, this is what happens when the media doesn't employ industrial correspondence anymore. I saw quite a lot of reports that said the industry is protesting. And you think, well, which bit? (laughs) Labour or capital? Which bit is protesting here? In any case... Um, and not knowing whether any of these workers had been told to do this or if they had any choice in doing it, underneath every one of these news reports on Twitter was a stream of abusive messages complaining that these bar staff were idiots who weren't wearing masks and all this kind of thing. This is the bit that I find sinister, is I think that 
there's um, a conscious attempt to use the conditions of lockdown basically to divide the ordinary citizen citizenry against itself on on a kind of on a divide of well the virus is out of control because people aren't complying enough people aren't conforming enough to the rules and so on that the evidence hasn't been that the evidence is that people have been very prepared to change their lives in very significant ways over a very long period of time for the the, the popular good we've all seen those outpourings of support for the nhs and and so on at the same time what we've noticed as you said neil was at the top of society, a total irresolution, confusion, but also, you know, self, you know, you know, self-interest seeking on the part of corporations, on the part of politicians. That's where the chaotic element has been at the top of society. It hasn't been in the public. Absolutely. I mean, it would be easier to tell who it was if they were dumping olives outside Hollywood, you know. But, <laughs> uh, but the, the reality, you know, is that um, you, you, you have seen that narrative emerge where it is, oh, look, um, Nicola Sturgeon, or if you see it in England, uh, you know, um, what do you call them, Hancock or whoever the other bunch of clowns are, um, they, they are doing their best. But it's just a few idiots who won't follow the rules. They're the ones who are spreading COVID. And you think, wait a minute here. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. We, can, we know there has been an abject failure in so many areas of the policy decisions that have been made. If that was not the case, then Debbie Schrader's prediction that Scotland would eradicate COVID would have came to fruition. But we're miles from it. Now, you can't blame that on a few... Uh, a few rockets who want to um, justify everything and say that I'm, I'm not wearing a mask, I'm not doing this, I'm not doing that, shove your hand sanitizer. That just doesn't stand up to scrutiny. So I think you're absolutely right. That, and that, that is emerging more and more, that it's about pointing the finger and it will be particularly, as always, as always, it will be pointing the finger at working class people and saying, that's the ones that are to blame for spreading COVID. I mean, the other thing that fascinates me about like, the political dimension in terms of the response to the coronavirus is, um, and Neil, you wrote a, an article for the Contour website on the on Nicola Sturgeon's handling of the pandemic quite early on. Um, but the, the thing that kind of really captures my imagination in a dark sort of way is how the rest of Europe um, and the English-speaking world have really looked at Nicola Sturgeon's handling of the pandemic as somehow exemplary compared to Boris Johnson's. Uh, I saw a thing on Twitter, right, which, I mean, I'll probably get cancelled for this pattern, but I'm going to hit out with it anyway. I saw a thing on Twitter which was about how women leaders have handled the pandemic better than anyone else. And this tweet was, I was from like women's, some women's organization and they illustrated women in leadership have dealt with the pandemic better than men in leadership. Illustrated with a picture, I think of Angela Merkel, Jacinta Ardern and Nicola Sturgeon. And I'm thinking, hang on, don't we have one of the worst death rates of similar sized countries in Europe? Like what is happening? Like, 
why do the SNP continue to get away with this? Hiding behind this kind of a sort of a glitzy cosmopolitanism, which is entirely superficial, which is represented by a professional managerial class using things like, like feminism and talking to the left um, when when it's out in, in public, but still acting. I mean, there's a fag paper's difference between the Scottish, the SNP's approach and Westminster's approach. Hardly any difference. But the window dressing of identity politics and kind of woke culture that the SNP are able to present, um, you know, it, it gives them this gloss Actually, or a Teflon coating. And I think it's really frustrating. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I, I, I heard an interesting uh, comment by Anna Sarwar the other week um, who said... Uh, there is no question that Nicola Sturgeon is a better communicator than Boris Johnson. I mean, that, that's stating the obvious, right? But um, a good communication strategy is very different from a COVID eradication strategy. And he is absolutely spot on in that. Absolutely spot on. So the fact that you can stand up there every day and give take questions and field questions from not exactly the most uh, hostile media pack you'll ever find, um, and the fact that you can string sentences together and say things in a tone and manner that kind of resonate with people, it's a big political skill. It absolutely is. And, 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 and Nicola Sturge is a very skilled political operator. There is not a millimetre between what they've done and what Johnson has done. Slight deviations when, you know, about unlocking lockdown and tweaks here and there, but largely, it's the same game that's being played. Um, but the treatment of both is absolutely extraordinary. And so how, how did they get away with it? I think they get away with it because there is only one issue that matters in Scotland at the moment. You can talk about COVID. You can talk about uh, health and education and drugs. And, and look in every corner of public services that are falling apart before our eyes. And none of that matters because the only thing that matters is the constitution. Everything else you just chuck aside. It'll be a five minute story in the news. It'll cause a ripple for a day or two. But in the big scheme of things, does it impact on people and how they're willing to view uh, the politics of Scotland? In my opinion, it doesn't. The only thing that is, is on the table at the moment is constitutional politics and it depresses the life out of me because you've got two firing squads aiming at each other. Mm. And in between, there's people dying, there's people whose mental health problems are not being addressed, waiting times are going to get bigger in the NHS, the educational attainment gap is growing, it's not reducing. Um, you, you, the housing crisis, you name it. All of these things are just absolutely horrific for people, ordinary people. And yet, let's get a flag out and wave it at each other. And that's the only thing that matters. You know, and, and, and as a socialist, that just really, I always say you can't be a socialist and a pessimist, but I, I'm struggling at the moment, I have to say. So, I mean, we've obviously had um, our share of disagreements about the national question. Um, but I think that we do, we do share that frustration that the national question dominates 
in in some sense like I, I I do understand what you're saying but for me this is part of the reason that I would rather see a referendum sooner than later is like I think that there has to be something to break the stasis I think that that Scotland is still in the grip of a, a kind of of a center ground of politics where it's like broken down in most other advanced economies but we are still trapped in this um this liminal space of devolution and we can't get out of it and part of that is because the national question does hang over us whether we um whether we welcome that or whether we don't so the way to break the stasis is to have the referendum um, and what I see is that we have an SNP government who say that they're pro-independence, but have absolutely no plan for delivering a referendum. Um, and as someone who I, I do support independence, but also the right to self-determination. I mean, I, I, I don't see the SNP actively doing anything about that right to self-determination. So I, I do, I get what you're saying about um, the kind of these material issues often feel like they are sidelined in the interests of a constitutional question. But I think as long as there is no pressure on the SNP to actually deliver on a constitutional question or deliver a referendum, then that's just going to keep happening. And I think part of the way to break the stasis and to actually have that right to self-determination fulfilled, then people have to be able to vote in a referendum again. Like the material change of circumstances that we were told about in 2015 um, has has been and gone. Like a lot a lot of ships have sailed since then. Um, so, I mean, that would be my two cents. The, the, uh, you know, we can speculate on what the, the, the result of that would be, but if we get back, if it's, a, if it's a no, then we just go back to square one again and we're in exactly the same position. I mean, my view on the referendum is uh, if, if people want a referendum, then so be it, so be it. And, we, and I think we take part in that referendum. Labour should take part enthusiastically and positively in that referendum. My view is that we should put a third option on the ballot paper. And that third option should be, uh, and it's a very practical and pragmatic approach that I'm taking. So let, let, me, let me explain it. It might take me a wee bit to explain how, how, how I've come to this position. I think there are a number of um, policy areas where if they were, uh, if we if we rejected the UK position for independence, we would be causing ourselves self harm, okay, on a number of policy areas. So my analogy that I use to try and explain this is if we think of a post taken into the post uh, sorting office in the morning, and he sorts his mail out into the wee ducats for the different postcodes. Let's replace those with levels of government. So at the top, you might have the United Nations, then the EU, then the UK, uh, Scotland, local government and people. You've got a pile of powers and you start to look at those powers and you say, right, housing, well, housing, that should go to the um, Scottish government, also should go to the local authority. And actually in some housing issues, you would want the community involved as well. You definitely want the community involved in planning and all that kind of stuff. Let's pick another issue like pensions. Why would you devolve pensions if your pension under independence, given what the Growth Commission says and all the rest of it, would be less than the pension, that, or, or it would be, be a big question over what kind of pension you would get and the amount that would be. I would leave pensions at a UK level because that makes pragmatic sense to do that. Let's look at something like drugs. We've got the worst drugs death, 
rate in the Western world. I would devolve all drug laws, right? However, that does not excuse the Scottish government for not dealing with the drugs issue at the moment because the same drugs laws, laws apply across the UK and yet we've got three times worse than England and Wales. So there's something peculiar going on here. But if we say, yes, drugs should be devolved, you then start to work through all of those policy areas and they actually slot in to a logical place. You wouldn't ask Glasgow City Council to deal with international drug trafficking. You would ask the EU and the United Nations. So that, that power goes at that level. You start to filter these in, and actually at the end, you would be left with a very, very small pile of powers that we would have an argument over. And some of them might be social security issues. We might have an argue, argument about uh, immigration policy. Uh, you know, for the life of me, why would you create an internal border on a small island? That just doesn't make sense to me. So my argument is there's a natural level of government for the powers to lie at a logical natural uh, natural uh, layer where they should lie. And that makes the case for me for a third option in the ballot paper, that we don't inflict self-harm, that we take positive action to devolve policy where it's going to have a real impact and change people's lives for the better in a progressive way. Because I have no interest in seeing Scotland becoming a neoliberal, smaller version of the UK. And the Growth Commission, I have to say, scares me witless as to what we might become. So if that's the, if that's the independence on offer, you can keep it as, just as much as you can keep the status quo. I do not want that either because it's a disaster for working people. See, I, I think this is where the, the predicament um, lies. Um, it's obviously 20 years uh, since the, the death of uh, Donald Dewar. It's maybe a good time then to reflect on, you know, the institution that uh, um, devolution has become. My, my concern about that position is a couple. One is that I, I actually think there's quite a good chance, not soon, but in the next few years, that... Um, the UK government may end up offering either a three-option referendum or a, a referendum that contains sort of poisonous clauses that would seek to divide the independence movement or would make it very difficult for one or two options to win, for example, a second confirmatory referendum, which, by the way, the SNP leadership has done to itself by demanding this in the, over Brexit. And I support that, by the way. Um, but but so I I, but I worry that rather than than be seen as a, as a progressive option, that would be seen as and be used as a tool by Westminster to disrupt um, the the independence question. But I, I suppose that the, the wider problem is that um, devolution has become an institution which has been used to do precisely what your worrying and independence would do. And I agree with you, of course. It, no friends of the Growth Commission here and so on. But the Growth Commission, of course, didn't just emerge from the independence movement. In fact, it didn't emerge from the independence movement at all. It emerged from a layer of the kind of, you know, the new men, the devil Charlotte Street, Charlotte Street Partners. Charlotte Street Partners, right? It, so it's, it's a product. And the leadership of the SNP, their politics is a product of the devolution settlement, not just, the, not just 2014. And that's a politics where since... Uh, you know, devolution has created enormous public confusion 
over where power really lies and has provided a platform for the leadership of the SNP, for the Angus Grossarts and the Angus Robertsons and the Charlotte Street Partners and so on to endlessly plead that there's nothing that they can do about any of the social problems in Scotland because of Westminster. And I mean, even when it, when it comes down to the, the pandemic, a big part of the reason that there's such a divide in perception between two failing governments, one in Holyrood and one in Westminster. It's not just the independence question. I also think it's the devolution culture. I think it's a spirit of Scottish exceptionalism, which has been curated around Holyrood and, and all this, that fundamentally, I mean, this is also like a, a long-term cultural attitude in Scotland, that Scots are more enlightened, more rational, more, you know, that we have technocratic virtues or something that go back to the Kirk or some rubbish. Uh, or the Scottish Enlightenment, and and that that attitude has really been given a, a boost by by the culture of devolution. I I just feel like the one thing that would throw that whole uh, social element into crisis would be not even just actually achieving independence, but a real force driving for independence in the country that wasn't prepared to subjugate that to the interests of quite a cynical, self-serving layer of people who've developed around a square mile in Edinburgh. Um, what they, they, they're frightened of independence, especially an independence narrative that they can't control. And, but you know, there's, you know, in my view, there's not a chance of that. Not a snowball's chance of that. And I'll tell you why. Um, part of it is the the way in which you're absolutely right in terms of, you know, we don't have the powers for this, we don't have the powers for that. Isn't it all terrible? You know, if only we had the powers, you know, it would be so much different. And we, we know that that's rubbish because the um, political philosophy, if indeed there is one, is that it's new labour in a kilt. That's the philosophy. That, you know, that, it's, it's so evident that that's the philosophy. That's, that's who they've looked at and said, actually, that's what we want. I mean, you know, take away the personalities and the idiosyncrasies and all the rest of it, but Blairism and, and is the kind of model that they've looked at and it's within the SNP, and, uh, and I can see that a mile away. One of the big, uh, one of the most depressing things for me uh, at the moment is... Um, You've got people in Holyrood itself. One of the most depressing things is the lack of people who have got any sort of independence of mind to speak out on anything. Um, so, trying to understand what the actual ideological position or the philosophy behind some of the people in Parliament is really, really difficult. Because if you want, let's take the SNP for example, if you want independence, that is a perfectly understandable and, you know, um, respectable political position to hold. But independence is not an ideology or a philosophy. It's a desire to see a different administrative unit. Tell me what type of independence is going to be. Are you a, are you, are you a socialist? Are you, do you want a communist independence? Do you want a neoliberal independence? Is, is, or is it just going to be more of the same. I don't, I don't think a number of those people know. They just want independence. It could be absolute terrible, it could be shit, but 
unless you understand what the political philosophy behind what the vision is of setting up that new state, then it's hard for people to judge whether it would be a success or not. And all we've got to go on is the Growth Commission document is, the, is, is what that political philosophy looks like. And I have to say, it doesn't look too attractive to me. I mean, sure. <laughs> I don't want to. I don't want to end up just the the three of us debating independence for the whole podcast. We'll be doing though, this for years. We've been doing this. For years we have and we'll like literally. This is like our entire relationship with you, Neil. Um, except it's, we're not doing it. We're not doing it on Twitter. Um, but I mean, I just. I'm, 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 I'm off again. What? <laughs> I mean, the only thing I will say, right, is that I think that the left, right, and I mean that in the broadest sense, right, so I'm not just talking about labour, I'm not just talking about, like, certain sectors. I mean, um, in the UK, in Europe, right, absolutely failed to grasp with enough um, velocity the response to the 2008 financial crisis that emerged around the question of nation states and the return to nation states and what that actually meant as a resistance, a place of resistance to austerity. So we saw it happen in Greece, we saw it happen in Spain, it happened all across Europe, like, you know, as part of the backlash to the 2007-2008 economic crisis. And I also think that part of it was you know what happened in Scotland I think that people began to cling to the idea of like a nation state or a nationalism which was seen as a resistance to a neoliberal order that had completely gone out of control um, and there's a there's a there's a sovereignist aspect to that and yes that can go left and it can go right yes, it, can go in, it can go it can go in either direction but i i think that the job for socialists is to be able to understand and, and recognize when that is happening and to pull the discourse towards the left like um i mean that happened in greece you know, in 2010, when there was like burnings of German flags in Syntagma Square, the waving of Greek flags, and that looking, to be honest, quite ugly. Do you know what I mean, I'm a socialist. I don't particularly like seeing like flat nation states flags being waved around, right? Unless it's part of like a genuine national liberation struggle. But like, I don't feel comfortable with that. But there was people who were canny enough and able to show leadership and to be active in the socialist and workers movement who were able to take that kind of explosion of populism around the question of national identity, national dignity and sovereignty and to pull that to the left into the forces that would eventually elect Syriza, which of course has a very tragic ending. Um, and this is part of the problem with uh, the, the, that emergence in England is that from my point of view, maybe you'll totally disagree with this, Neil, but I feel like the, the the English left around the Labour Party are terrified of Englishness. Like there's a real squeamishness about the question of Englishness. I think about Emily Thornberry's tweet with the, do you remember the white van? The white van in the driveway and the England flag out the window. And she tweeted something which was sneering, quite frankly, um, about, oh, how the, look at what this country has become. And I've always felt that like the kind of, 
the posher English left within the Labour Party have would prefer just to say that they were British, even if that means invading other countries for oil, than go anywhere near the idea of Englishness because it's associated with yeah. football <laughs> hooliganism and lagger louts and you know lads, lads, lads and all that sort of stuff. But there actually has to be like a, a grasping of that. I think that Corbynism is the closest, like the kind of Corbyn McDonald duo, if you like, um, is the closest that the Labour Party um, has come to being able to identify itself with an Englishness. Um, but obviously Corbynism has had quite a, a tragic end as well. Um, and I just, I wanted to ask you a little bit about um, Corbynism and like what, what lessons you think Labour can learn from the defeat of Corbynism and where the where might the left hope come from for those within the Labour Party or those who support the Labour Party um, you know, in the aftermath of Jeremy yeah. Corbyn? I think, that, well, you first of all spoke about Englishness and, you know, Billy Bragg's been talking about this for a long time, about, you know, getting to grips with Englishness and the positive, um, uh, that kind of positive uh, view of Englishness. Um, uh, 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 we, we, you, and you also spoke about how the emergence uh, or the failure of the, the broad European left to, to um, uh, take advantage of the, you know, the political dynamics that came out of that, uh, the, the crash. Um, I think that's right. I mean, uh, you know, the, with the crisis in capitalism, it should have been the left who who came to the fore and flourished and 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 dominated, and actually, and the opposite uh, happened. And, and you know, which has taken quite a while for people to kind of get their heads around and understand how we missed that clearing opportunity. It was only in, really in Portugal and, and Spain that uh, in Greece with Syriza that that kind of trend, trend was bucked. Um, I think uh, in England, one of the issues about um, Englishness, I think, is people have quite a, a dominant regional identity in England, I think. You know, people who are for the North East are, you know, they, are, they they know and don't dare tell people for Sunderland or Geordies and all that kind of stuff. Um, Merseyside's got a big, big, strong regional identity. London's got a strong regional identity. So there's a kind of, I think... For me, that leads itself to ultimately a federal structure that people and people are actually now demanding that much more power when we see the sort of mess that there is within local governance in England, where you've got regional mayors and you know London Assembly and all these various different bits. But I think there's a growing voice for more power, particularly during the COVID pandemic. People like Andy Burnham, Steve Rotherham, and, and others really making their voice heard during the pandemic to say, "Listen, don't dare take us for." Granted, and this is a strong regional identity that we're going to um, we're going to lead in we're, uh, that that kind of area. So I think there's that's a, that's definitely a, a factor. Um, sorry, what was the second part of your question? Um, basically, yeah. what lessons do you oh, yeah, think Corbyn. Labour can learn from the defeat of Corbynism? Oh, how long have we got? Um, geez, <laughs> as long I mean, as you like. <laughs> this is all we do. <laughs> oh dear. I mean, I suppose the thing for me. Uh, Jeremy Corbyn's a great friend of mine and a man who, uh, a thoroughly decent, good human being. Um, probably, I cannot think, well, since Tony Benn, I'm more, someone who's been more vilified by the media and uh, uh, and clearly that 
went up several notches following 2017 when they thought, geez, surely not. He, you know, so I was listening to in a podcast the other day, and it was uh, it was people reflecting on a very British coup, and uh, you know whether during the Corbyn time this was a rerun of it. And, and it's an excellent, say, excellent show. Yeah, loved and, it. I, David, I have to say, you're cutting the Harry Perkins look quite a bit there. I have to oh say. my God, <laughs> David, you do look like Harry Perkins. Oh, I, I think we're all first class, really. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, lessons for Corbin. One, one very practical lesson, and I have to say, it's quite. Uh, I kind of smile when I say this is, and Jeremy would say this himself that uh, you know. The last member of the House of Commons that I would ever expected to be leading a political party was Jeremy Corbyn, and, and probably he was as well. Um, one of the sad things for me uh, in that is that actually I just wish it had been John McDonnell. I really wish it had been John McDonnell because I've dealt with John a number of times over uh, many years. John doesn't mind a square go. He doesn't mind a square go. Jeremy hates a square go. So when there's a bit of rough and tumble to be had and behind the scenes arguments to be had, John's your man and he will just say, look, sometimes you just have to have a big rammy to clear the air and get things out of the way. Whereas Jeremy's nature is a much more, he's much more um, peace loving and he's a pacifier and will put off kind of decisions and confrontation. And when you're in that position, you just can't do that. So Part of me regrets that it was not John that was at the, the, the forefront. However, however, um, I have to say, uh, being involved in the two leadership campaigns, and you know, I chaired both of them in Scotland, um, it is one of, the, one of the great memories that I have through my time in, in Parliament because it was, it was exhilarating and it was exciting and it was just a good thing to be involved in because there was hope, there was a vision, there was policy, there was, we were talking about socialism, we were talking about everything that I've believed in all my life. And by God, that was exciting. That was, finally, you kind of could see that your political philosophy was becoming a bit mainstream rather than being stuck away out in the fringes. And, uh, and people were listening. And those were kind of heady days, I have to say. Um, and, you know, 2017, they didn't win the election and all the rest of it. But that programme that was put forward, that Corbynism, if you want to describe it in that way, I actually describe it as pretty... I mean, mainstream's not the word. I don't like you, but kind of broad, progressive... Not, it certainly wasn't the Communist Manifesto, um, but it was broad, progressive and popular kind of democracy, if you like, and... Uh, there was, we could have went more further on a number of things, uh, but I think uh, that was a that was a good time, and it shows what can be done when there is a bit of drive and energy and vision, and 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 where you are not facing at that point the hostility that we faced following that, and when you're not mired in the constitution as we were during the next election, but the constitution was the Brexit constitution. You see, can I ask about that? So obviously there were there were a number of things that went wrong, um, but it, it seems to me that the, the Brexit question was the central one. Now here's, you know, people, whenever there's a defeat, people start to write 
alternative history narratives, right? At which point did it go wrong? So here's just an example of an alternative history narrative, and it leads on from what Kat was talking about, about the left taking the lead on national questions, if you like, constitutional questions. Let's assume that Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonnell, who are traditionally Eurosceptics, kind of left Eurosceptics in the Labour Party, let's assume that being in charge of the party as they were, they couldn't have campaigned to leave the European Union in, in 2016. How's, uh, how's about this? On the, on, the on the morning of the 24th, uh, Britain's voted to leave. Uh, now, a lot of people at the time were outraged that Jeremy Corbyn automatically said, right, we're leaving. You know, and, and, and made that unequivocal. And I think that was the right thing to do. But I think he could have gone much further. I think at that point, and it's all, you know, all in hindsight, I didn't think on the, tw on the morning of the 24th um, that Corbyn would eventually be, you know, attacked by factions of the left who are pro-Remain. I didn't actually understand that people would go that far to protect Britain's European Union membership. But had he stood before the country, made a speech that morning saying, uh, and this isn't my position, I voted to leave, but I can understand why some people would have this position. I campaigned to remain and I voted to remain because I was suspicious of the intentions of the people who were leave, leading the campaign for us to leave the country. That said, let's be honest about what the problems of the European Union are. It's anti-democratic, it's a free trade organization, it isn't really in the interest of working class people in this country or across Europe. And furthermore, now that we're outside of it, here's a, I don't know, a 10 point program of things that we can do now more easily that, that, than we could do before. Because what I came across time and time again during the campaign inside and outside the Labour Party in 2018 and 2019 for the so-called people's vote, which was obviously going to alienate a vital core constituency of Labour's vote, the arguments that I came, what I came across time and again among Labour members in wider left opinion was most left-wing people didn't know what the European Union was. The only thing they knew about it was that Nigel Farage didn't like it. Uh, do you know? And that that for them framed framed the whole political question. There's little doubt in my mind that Corbyn and McDonnell had they actually had the argument out could have changed the minds of millions of people about the European Union and where it sits as a priority in, for example, Labour's uh, future, future programme. I mean, isn't that a very, very clear example of where the left needs to take national and constitutional questions very seriously and have its own independent analysis? Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more in terms of it has to be taken seriously and have its own analysis. The, the, the issue there, I mean, I, I voted remain at the very last minute, and I mean the very last minute, I had my, I've always been probably off the kind of Benny sort of position, um, anti-democratic, since since Maastricht really, um, in my own constituency Labour Party, I was the only person who uh, at that time was arguing that we should be out of Europe because of what Maastricht was doing. Um, and people kind of couldn't believe that a young sort of left activist would take that position. Um, and I, I maintained that position all the way up until the final, uh, I had my ballot paper in, in the house, my postal ballot in the house, and it haunted me for three weeks. I, I was sort of walking past it, like shielding my eyes, averting my gaze. And um, when Nigel Farage 
uh, unveiled the poster depicting the children on the train. Um, I grabbed it and filled it in and voted Remain. And I have to say, if that sounds um, shallow or uh, fickle or whatever, then so be it. But that's what swung me. I could not bring myself to be voting the same way. And, and as, as it's such, you know, overt racism, I just couldn't bring myself to do it. The minute I put it in the ballot box, because I kept it, I didn't post it, I put it in the ballot box because I kept it that late. I regretted it the minute I put it in. Or did I regret it? I'm, I, what I would say is I've been tortured by that ever since. Because I did not vote true to what I've always believed. I voted on a, on a spur of the moment, which I would never, ever have done before. I think I did it for honourable reasons, but I don't... I'm still, you know... Um, kind of tortured by whether I did the right thing at that point. And, and I, I'm only being straight up and honest with you, and I've said that publicly before. Um, I, uh, you put an interesting scenario, David, about how, how that could have been. I mean, I, I think part of the, the, the reality is that when you're dealing with um, a big party like Labour at that, you know, 600-odd thousand members at that time, a big constituency of that in London, which is, you know, very pro-Corbyn, but very pro-EU, very diverse, all of that, it was, you know, there were forces with, within the party that were really putting tremendous pressure on Corbyn and McDonald to go in a certain direction. Then you obviously look at others, like people like Ian Lavery, uh, you know, the people in the north um, who were influential within the party as well. I mean, I know for a fact that, you know, uh, likes of Lavery and Starmer, you know, used to growl at each other across the shadow cabinet table because, and it was all about Brexit, because it was deemed as being, you sort of the, if you like, the, the kind of London trendy lefties against the sort of the northern, uh, you know, sons of the toil kind of thing. And, and you know, you can see how that dynamic would play out. <laughs> but that was the dilemma. So when you've got that big coalition pulling apart on something like this, that, and, and, and to be fair, there are a number of people, for, I, I can I can never understand it. I, I just can't understand it yet. But there are a number of people for whom the European Union is like a, the big issue, the biggest issue, it's it's kind of what sort of drives their politics, and I've never really understood that. I just it doesn't it doesn't fit on my radar of when where I grew up in and what influenced my sort of politics or my life. And, and that's not to decry these people for that. If that's important to them, so be it. But it never really kind of come on my radar as being what got me jumping out of bed in the morning. I mean, I really appreciate your honesty about the about your feeling conflicted over the the vote itself. I mean, I could uh, I say something. I, I would like to add sure. something. On that. Um, this sort of narrative after the vote. Um, when you have the likes of the view that um, Scotland is extremely pro EU, and it's just always bad people in England and Wales who were the antis. No, I just don't believe that for a second. I also, I do believe, uh, for a big part of this, that the national question had a huge impact on 
how people voted up here. Remember, it's only, what, 25 years or so from when the SNP were uh, wanted out of Europe. Now, I know, I, I totally believe that if in the middle of the campaign, Nicola Sturgeon got out of bed and said, actually, the SNP's now no, voting no and we're all going to leave, you would have had a big army of people saying, no, we're all no now because this is terrible. You know, I genuinely believe that for a number of people, it was tribal kind of loyalty to a particular um, brand of politics that um, would have influenced them. Not all of them, not all of them by any manner of means. And that's, you know, I, I, people have got their own independence of mind, but I think that had a huge influence. I mean, you could call that tribalism or you could call it leadership. Um, I think that the problem in Scotland is that, I mean, the, really there was a complete lack of diversity within our political establishment on views about the European Union because every single party in Holyrood is yeah. pro-EU. Do you yeah. know what I mean? All of them are like pro-European Union. So I don't really see, um, I think that that does have an impact on the vote for a start. I also do think that the national question played a role. So I know plenty of people who are, uh, you know, intellectually very Eurosceptic, have a proper critique of what um, the European Union really is, but thought, oh God, like, let's stay in Europe so that there is an, at least another buffer between, like, you know, the worst excesses of the Tories um, on this little island and you know Brussels will be like an additional buffer to to those excesses um, and I also think there was people who thought if we vote to remain and England votes to leave then it will furnish our case for independence now it's it's a, actually a really modern thing for Scotland to be more pro-European Union than England it's a very new thing and um, you know it's, it's nothing to do with that sort of fake national vanity that we have about Scottish people being like you know more progressive and more left-wing and all that nonsense it's nothing to do with that I think it's part it's to do with like the way that our parliament looks the to be frank the kind of conformity and homogeny of ideas that are in the Scottish parliament I mean I'm personally Neil very sad that you are leaving the Scottish parliament at the next election I think that you've been a great addition to the parliament and you're one of the few MSPs who is like a campaigning MSP and you know you're not afraid to to challenge government and I think that we need more of that um, and what I'm worried about is that with yourself going a few other left-wing MSPs going from both Labour and from the SNP like some of the old SNP stalwarts are going people like Sandra White who like David and I both know from the anti-war movement um, I just worry that uh, Holyrood is going to become even more conformist in terms of its of its ideas, um, and I I wanted to know what what you thought about the the state of the Scottish Parliament. I mean, I want to. <laughs> I think that there's a problem of lawyers, right? I think there's too many bloody lawyers in the Scottish Parliament. <laughs> we have a politics that's dominated by people from the professional managerial class but particularly the legal profession um not particularly being against lawyers but there are a lot of them but you i mean you don't make the mistake that um just because you have people from working class backgrounds that will be off the left um that's that's a bad mistake to make because uh, i know that in the the, you know, the first parliament i was in there was a number of people 
in my own party and others who came from, you know, they were steel workers, welders, you know, that came from working in Tesco, you, you, you know, you name it, uh, there, was, there was quite a diversity. Um, not all of them were people off the left, I have to say. Uh, that was... Um, no, I think that I think that that's a fair point. But don't you think that it has a perverse action on people's consciousness when the whole political establishment doesn't doesn't share your background, regardless of whether they're people from the left or the right? Then when you have a, a parliament dominated by one group or like the professional managerial class, I would say, then I think it has a perverse impact on how people determine their politics outside the parliament so we have lots of groups of people who don't feel represented and um, by either the more progressive voices or you know the kind of more right-wing voices that exist in the the short Holyrood continuum so it's not necessarily I'm saying we need more working class people in parliament because they're going to be more left-wing it's more that actually like that's what a democracy is is that, that you should actually have a parliament that represents the people I I definitely agree. I mean, I, the thing that worries me more than no, no, no more than that. I, I mean, I, I do, I do um, absolutely believe that we need more uh, diversity within the parliament. When, but that that diversity should not mean that we uh, we replace um, white middle class men and women for uh, more BME middle middle-class men and women or disabled middle-class men and women or whatever. We need proper diversity across the parliament so that, you know, we have, we have real depth and diversity across and we do need more black and minority ethnic candidates, more disabled candidates and, and, and all the rest of it. And we certainly need more working class candidates, absolutely, uh, coming forward. Um, the, the, the bit that really concerns me is the lack of uh, people who are willing to stand up and challenge both their own party, but particularly their own party, and especially when in government. Um, because if you, the House of Commons gets um, attacked for many, many things, rightly so. But one of the things that it does uh, have that uh, Hollywood doesn't is a cohort of um, backbenchers um, who are fearless in challenging their own side. And if we think back across the years to different prime ministers and whatever, look at people like, um, you know, uh, people like you know, Challenge Blair, like John McDonnell, Jeremy Corbyn, Tam Dale, uh, Tony Benn, these types of people, um, Alice Mann, I can, you know, people like that, Diane Abbott. If you, and then if you go to John Major's time, he had all the Eurosceptics in the Tory party who, who you know, eventually brought him down because of the willingness to challenge their own party. Um, even during the Cameron years, you had you know, people on their back benches who were willing to stand up and say, actually, you're getting this wrong. And Theresa May, you know, again, brought down by people uh, you know, who were willing to resign from the cabinet, take her on. That never happens up here. This does not happen. They don't have... Um, I, I, and a number of people, if you took away the script that they've been given, I wouldn't know, you wouldn't know which party they're coming from. Because I don't know what their political philosophy is, I don't know what their ideas are or whatever. And that's not a, that's not disparaging them. They're like really good, decent people, of course they are. But 
if your ambition is to go into, if, you're, if you've got ambition to be a parliamentarian, which probably should rule you out from ever being one, but if you've got an ambition to do that, the end of that ambition cannot be to stand up and give and read out a script that's been given to you by your party. That, that must be the most soulless, emotionless thing to be involved in, that you just go in there and you take a party line and you repeat it and you attack the opposition. Now, I'm up for attacking the opposition as much as MD and I give it and, and I take it. But for me, the whole point of being involved in politics is to drive campaigns and campaigns that you're passionate about and you're interested in and that will actually make a difference. If, you might have heard of the movement for change that was on the go a while back. It was David Miliband's brainwave. And they had this campaign and manual that um, actually, I believe, used to uh, advise uh, their um, adherents to pick a campaign and, and, and one that you can't win, but it allows you to continue to campaign on it. So you, you, you wouldn't get a result, uh, but just keep campaigning and you'll make a name for yourself. And then that, that just, I, I, you know, that would just crush my soul because the whole point of getting involved in a campaign is to deliver change, deliver, you know, to succeed. So for me, that's what it's been about. And, uh, you know, as mentioned my Tandiel, who was my mentor, who, you know, was an absolutely fearless, independent-minded uh, uh, MP who um, told me, you know, at one point, he said, do not, do not be afraid to bore for Britain. He said, do not be afraid. That's, he would stand up there in the House Commons with 649 people against him, and he believed he was right, so he would just continue to prosecute his case and his campaign. Now, part of that he, he, he accepted was his background at Eton, which drummed into you, the class system drummed into him as, a, as an upper-class member of the aristocracy, drummed into him that whatever it was, he was correct. But some of that rubbed off in me that if you had a cause and a case that you absolutely believe in, then you should do everything you can to prosecute that case and win and, 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 and win that campaign. So uh, to be honest, I've, uh, I've taken um, a lot of inspiration from the way that he campaigned and, uh, and that's partly been, in fact, that's been the most enjoyable part of being in Parliament. I mean, you, you've had uh, the campaigns, just the ones I've been aware of, have included the blacklisting of construction workers, Orgreave, uh, the mesh implant scandal, something I don't really think got enough, um, you know, coverage in, in, in the Scottish media, actually. Let me tell story. you why, David. Let me tell yeah. you why yeah. it didn't get coverage. Because it's about women's reproductive systems, but women's, uh, it's about women's vaginas. That's why it doesn't get coverage. Because I'll tell you, we... When we started in this campaign, very, very interesting. Um, I got made the Shadow Health Secretary and I got past a big folder of um, stuff from Jackie Bailey, very meticulously, she, you know, very meticulous in how uh, she ran her campaigns and stuff. And, and, and she had been my predecessor. And at the bottom of it was one cutting from a newspaper that mentioned transvaginal mesh. And I can be, you know, a big lump working class guy, ex-bricklayer, not the kind of thing that's my regular uh, conversation down the pub with my pals. And I kind of, Tommy Kane, who worked with me, the two of us looked at it 
looked at each other and kind of went, well, we'll deal with that later. And it kept coming back to the top of the pile. And we had a look at it and we said, no, look, we're just going to have to deal with this. So we got, we invited the women in, and there was about eight women who came in, um, who we all sat around a table and looked at our feet and looked a wee bit edgy and embarrassed at each other. And, and I said, look, I don't know you, you don't know me. And this issue is going to be embarrassing and it will be as embarrassing for you as it is for us because this is about a very uh, intimate issue that's had a huge impact on your life. So we can we just agree that for the first 10 minutes, we're all going to be embarrassing and we're all going to go on fine. And it was like pricking a balloon. The, there was just deep breaths and, and, and we all got on like a house on fire after that. And we built a lot of trust with the women who were absolutely magnificent. And these are women who have had some of the worst um, uh, things happen to them, disability and lost their jobs, their homes, their families, their relationships, their love life, you name it, they've lost it. And uh, when we started to run the campaign, nobody wanted to know. Nobody wanted to know because you were asking tabloid journalists or you know, broadsheet journalists, to write, a, write about vaginal implants. So we called a press conference at the parliament and we invited the whole Scottish press pack and two people turned up, two people turned up. And when I asked, and I've, I've, I quoted this in parliament a couple of weeks ago, when I asked a very senior member of the press pack who'd been there since Holyrood began, why did you not come to that um, why did you not come to that press conference? It's a really important issue, and this is going to grow this issue. And he said, Neil, we didn't talk about women's fannies. That's that's the quote, right? That's what he said to me. The same newspaper, only a few years previous, used to publish naked pictures of women on page three every day, but they wouldn't come and cover an issue that was about transvaginal mesh implants. And that really, early on, showed what we were up against in terms of getting our sto the story out. Thankfully, we had Marion Scott, who was at the Sunday Mail at the time, and now at the Sunday Post, who was one of the best journalists in Scotland, absolutely a fabulous uh, investigative journalist and just a, a complete tour de force. And she basically ran stories week in, week out, week in, week out, and it, it, you know exposing the whole thing. And uh, we ended up having a really tight team working on this. The women themselves were absolutely superb. And one of the one of the very positive things in relation to the parliament is Tommy, uh, who worked with me, said, "Look, we've tried every angle to get the government interested with debates, with questions, we met ministers. Not not interested. Why don't we take a petition before the petitions committee?" So we helped draft the petition for the women. And they took it to the petitions committee, and their um, their performance and their not performance is the wrong word. Their appearance before the petitions committee, um, the chair Dave Stewart said, in all his time on it and chairing it, was the most emotional and powerful uh, uh, appearance by anyone, and it completely transformed the issue overnight. So the Parliament petitions system, I think, is an underrated um, system. But um, yeah, so that's the story behind that. That's why no one wanted to talk about that. If this was a men's issue, it would have been resolved a long time ago. I am absolutely convinced of that. Can I ask in one more 
area of the parliament that you've you've raised this issue over and over again is and because it relates to the wider debate about the the uses and misuses of Holyrood is transparency um both in the well transparency in the Scottish government primarily so obviously it shouldn't be in the same sentence yeah at the start of the pandemic well what we now know is that um there's no paper trail whereby we can read how the Scottish government took its initial decisions about the pandemic, about its strategy to, to deal with the pandemic, its response, lockdown, how all these major debates were arrived at. There's nothing been written down. And this is a thing that I know you and, and a lot of journalists in Scotland have gotten used to. The fact that around the Scottish government, nothing really seems to get written down. It's impossible to find out how decisions are made. Um, what I mean, I don't, I again, I don't understand why that's not a bigger scandal. I also think just because it's in the headlines right now, um, it relates to a kind of deeper question about the culture of at the top of the SNP. Because I'm starting to wonder, and it's pure speculation, if there's a relationship between the obviously dysfunctional character of the leadership office office of the SNP going back over years, and the fact that there seems to be a culture of secrecy at the top of the party. So no matter, I mean, no matter what you think about the, um, the court case and so on, the Salmond um, case and his defenses and what went on with the, um, the inquiry and so on, no one is claiming Salmond and his defense uh, included, no one is saying that there was an, I think Nicholas Sturgeon called it misbehavior um, under Salmond and a certain workplace culture. Um, we now see that, you know, it, it do, does, that, does that throw this issue of the lack of things being written down, the lack of transparency into a different aspect, aspect into a different light? Do you think there's a, a possible relationship between those two things? Well, I mean, I put an FOI on the um, uh, the policy, if it was a policy made by some... Hmm. That doesn't exist. And we know, but we know that that was done verbally and, you know, cat your members in the uh, your members in the PCS or Scottish government will tell you that you you know that um, but um, yeah the, the whole issue around I mean <laughs> FOI and and the like is just um, is completely farcical um, you know you had you had the situation where what was it we had thirty odd of our national journalists writing to the information commissioner the commissioner intervening um, and frankly then they just continued on their merry way and ignored much of what was being said and uh, when you try to um, find out what's going on it is really really difficult we had a few years back we had a, um, a good few probably five years back six years back now we had some real big successes in using FOI 
um, particularly around things like Alex Salmon's visit to Qatar and his hobnobbing it, um, Hamza Yusuf and Sir Nicholas Soames hobnobbing it in the Middle East to get business, uh, um, this, this Qatari sovereign wealth fund investing in Scottish renewables and all this kind of stuff. All of that came from FY. It was, it was, it was really good stuff. Um, and then things changed and it just completely, I think, I'm, I'm trying to think whether the timing was right, but certainly when, since Nicholas Sturgeon's been first minister, it's changed dramatically. And trying to get information now is, is really, really, really difficult. And there is that culture of uh, secrecy and, uh, you know, um, I had an FY weekend. I asked, I asked um, what the Minister for Older People has been doing during the COVID uh, crisis, given that we've got one of the greatest crises affecting older people. Uh, and I got back that she had no meetings with the First Minister, no meetings with the Health Secretary, no meetings with senior civil servants in the health department, almost nothing. So in fact, it was nothing. <laughs> and then, so when, I, when you call that out, the repost was, you're politicizing the pandemic. No. You're the bloody minister who's supposed to be protecting older people. So you can still get wee nuggets of stuff out, but they really have closed ranks and it is a very secretive way in which, um, which the government runs. And, you know, if you try to get information, for example, on things like the Scottish Futures Trust and all these um, uh, investment vehicles and who the actual real investors are, you cannot get that information. You cannot find who is at the bottom or at the top of all these um, public contracts that are going out and being financed by private investors that are absolute squillions. You can't find out. It's just impossible. So there are huge, huge issues there. Um, I have to say, I think the information commissioner's not been particularly great uh, in, in uh, weighing in on that. And part of this is it relates back to the way that the, the parliament operates. And the parliamentary questions are junk currency. Um, you basically put them in, I, I don't know, you, you folks are too young to remember the two Ronnie's sketch about answering the question before. Uh, you go and watch it on YouTube, it's fabulous. Where, you know, the, the, the guy comes in, the, it's on Mastermind. It's an episode of Mastermind and his specialist subject is, uh, uh, answering, uh, asking, answering the question before. So when he goes on, the guy says good evening and he doesn't answer. And the next he says specialist subject and he says David Jameson and you know, it all goes on like this. So anyway, parliamentary questions are a bit like that. You ask a question and you get the answer to a completely different question. No, no relevance whatsoever to. So what happens from that is they become junk currency. So the only option you're left with is the FOI. So they then complain that you're putting in all these FOIs and they delay them and all that kind of stuff. And also the £650 limit on FOI has not went up since, I think it was 2004. And I put in a parliamentary question a couple of months back, which came back and said, they have no intention of raising the limit on FOI. So that, will, that, that amount will reduce each year until it becomes absolutely worthless. Um, so yeah, there's, there are huge issues around secrecy and, uh, and the way things operate. And I think particularly in relation to the business community, 
you know, good examples again. You can have a look at ministerial diaries, and it tells you who the first minister or cabinet secretary has met. And they're pub they're published. Uh, you then go and say, oh, I see Nicola Sturgeon met with uh, Andrew Wilson. Um, FOI, can you tell us the agenda? Can you provide us with the pre-briefing and the minutes uh, of that? And it comes back and says, no agenda, no minutes, no pre-briefing. And you're saying, but wait a minute, this was an official meeting. They weren't just meeting for a cup of tea and a blether. This should have been according to the rules that should have been recorded, it should have been minuted, and all the rest of it. Nothing available. Now, that just shouldn't happen. That just shouldn't happen. Equally, what's interesting is I, I now ask for, you know, minutes and uh, emails and correspondence and details of messages from encrypted phone apps. I, I, I've now started asking for that in my FOIs. Not had any yet. So I then asked how many um, ministers and civil servants' phones are equipped with encrypted phone apps? And there are thousands. <laughs> Go and look at my parliamentary question. I think there's over a thousand uh, civil servant phones up. So we'll never know. I, I, think, I think they also answered that um, they don't need to provide details of, from encrypted phone apps, but uh, I need to check that out. I'm sure that's what they said as well. So yeah. Um, They'd of... be doing us a favour if they just used the Scottish Labour strategy of leaking the WhatsApps to the press. Absolutely. I mean, <laughs> it, well, Scott, I actually um, moved at our group meeting that we should stop excluding the press from the group meetings and bring them in. It would save, <laughs> it would save people's thumbs and fingers tweeting what's actually happening, so you could just bring them in instead. Are you still in the infamous WhatsApp group? I don't know if I'm in the WhatsApp group, but I don't go to group meetings. I've not been to one for... God knows how long you were trying to spare myself that pain. Because <laughs> I think it was a, it was there was a fight between you and Ian Murray, wasn't it? Oh, God, no, I wouldn't need to necessarily have been on a WhatsApp group. <laughs> oh, Ian Murray, some man. <laughs> I couldn't possibly comment. That's very, uh, that's very generous of you, very kind. So, Neil, I hear you've got a book coming out. <laughs> you don't think we'd rehearse this cut. <laughs> I'm I'm the smooth operator. <laughs> I have indeed. Um, actually, it's not my book. It's my granddad's book, believe it or not. And there's a there's a nice wee political story to this. Um, during the referendum in 2014, I was in the village of Pumpherson, which is just outside Livingston, and that was the um, one of the real central. Um, villages of the first uh, oil boom that took place in Scotland at the part of the later part of the uh, 19th century. And uh, I was going past my granny and granda's old house and we were canvassing. So I knocked on the door and got speaking to the woman and I was saying to her, you know, this was my granny and granda's old house. And she says, oh yeah, we bought the house for your grand when she went into the sheltered housing and they got chatting, blah, blah, blah. So she, she said, you know, when we, decorate the house, if we scrape wallpaper, we find uh, a story or a poem or a joke that your granda had written on the wall. I said, oh, that's really interesting. That's good. He was always kind of up to things like that. Anyway, she went away back into the house and she came back out and she said, I'll have to show you this. And she had a, a two by two piece of plywood. And she said, this was the end panel of the bath. 
and we'd, we'd just been fitting a new bathroom. And she turned it around and my granddad had written an abridged version of his life story on it. And uh, she showed me it and it was absolutely amazing. And, and actually she gave me it and she says, you need to take this, you know, this is part of your family and all the rest of it. So I took it up, me and my mum read it and it was just fantastic, it was amazing. So what it done was it sent me searching for a wee hardback book, probably no bigger than this one that I've got here actually. Um, wee hardback book that I got and it was the only thing I got for the house when my granddad passed away. And uh, I had looked at it kind of fleetingly over the years, but never really sat down and read it all. And this was his life story. And so he was basically, a, he was a plumber and a lead burner in the oil industry and lived in the village, in and around that village all his life. And he writes about the uh, growing up, going to school, working, and, um, you know, some of it's nostalgic, some of it's quite hard because he talks about, you know, how hard life was, people dying in industrial injury, he talks about the general strike and stuff like that. Um, but it's really well written. It's very well written. And um, it, it just goes through his, his life right up until about, I would say probably the 19... Probably about 1990 or maybe about 1990 when he says my eyesight's fading and I can't write anymore. So I went and read that after we found the board and I thought, no, I have to sort of type this up. So I just typed it up for our own family. And then I thought, geez, I wonder, this is actually good. This should actually get out there. So next month, Lewis uh, publishers are going to publish it. And it's called Life in the Raws because the Raws were the rosy houses. Um, so uh, it's called Life in the Raws, uh, uh, Memoirs of a Shale Village. Uh, and we've got loads of family photographs, but also photographs for the Shale Museum uh, that will go along with that. So that's my plug for the book. It'll be out in hopefully early November, time for Christmas. So uh, Oh, that sounds, it sounds incredible. Like what a, what a thing to have. Um, that's a real treasure. It was like, the, yeah. Spine in the board. I mean, it was just, and, and that kind of it stemmed from that. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to getting out there. It's, it's, it's interesting stuff. That sounds brilliant. So, when it's out, um, we'll need to get a copy and we'll uh, maybe do a review um, on the podcast. <laughs> but I would, uh, I would love to read it. Um, I'm really, I love hearing those like authentic stories, you know, from, from that generation. I've, I've mentioned before on the pod, I think David, you'll correct me if I'm wrong, but my, my, so my family are from Coatbridge and my granddad, my granddad Boyd, he was born um, into the Rose Hall Rows, which the Rose Hall Rows were obviously the, the infamous because they were used as the front cover illustration for the Road to Wigan Pier by George Orwell to illustrate like the conditions the working class were forced to live in and I always just think about like that period of history for my granddad to be born um, around the time of the general strike like he was born in 1920 but his first memories of the 1926 general strike um, his father and brothers were all you know working they were all uh, working in uh, the mines and then for me now to be doing what I'm doing with my life in such a short period of time, the amount of social progress that was made um, to come out of like the worst slums in Britain um, for your son to then go to university and become a teacher and then his daughter go to university. It's a, it was a remarkable period. 
Yes. Um, and I think like any of those like almost like oral histories, but where they've actually been committed to paper, um, are just I, yeah. I think that you're right. I mean, I, I, I'm sure I'll, I'll probably be proved wrong, but I think it, um, thinking back over history, people who were born at that time, the start of the last century, you know, up until you know the start of this. The period of change that they have gone through, where people were going around in bare feet and a uh, horse and cart was the form of transport, to a place where you have, you know, a mobile phone that can tell you anything you want, and you can, you know, you can shout at your telly and it switches on, and you know, and we have, and the consumer sort of goods that we have and the, how how small the world is in terms of travel and so like my granddad's um, his father was a bricklayer my dad was a bricklayer and I'm a bricklayer at trade so it runs my granddad was the one that missed out in the sort of family line but he his grandfather um, was a went from the Pumphers and Oil Works to go and build the industrial retorts which was a big sort of um, chimney type thing uh, in the Blue Mountains in Australia and Sydney. Uh, and, you know, I think it was some like 10 weeks it took them to get there on a, on a boat to get there, you know, and you think, well, if that was the case now, you'd be in Sydney in, you know, 23 hours or something or whatever it is, the round trip. It, it's phenomenal change in that. I don't think anybody I can think of a, a period in history that's seen such phenomenal change. And like some of my granny who... My granny was adopted. She was uh, worked as a domestic servant in a big sort of house down the road, and then worked in my auntie's shop. My granny, you know, through self-education, just being very, very bright, was if she had been had her time again, uh, she would be doing a PhD or something like that, without any shadow of a doubt. She was just a super intelligent woman, but come from absolutely nothing. Uh, in that period of time, there was not a chance she was going to anywhere else apart from to work in the big house down the road for the, you know, the landed gentry kind of thing, you know. But uh, yeah, so quite excited that's coming out. And I'm also working on a project that will come out next year, um, which is on a book on campaigns and struggle. And uh, I've been doing a lot of interviews. Just, just uh, this is I do this in at holiday time. It's kind of what I do when I'm away on holiday, but I, uh, I've been interviewing people like blacklisting campaigners, people who campaigned during the minor strike, the spy cops scandal, the mesh women, all of them I've been doing first-hand interviews with them and then writing up their story uh, a bit off the campaign. And the premise of it is that there's a lot of people have come into politics um, and activism over the last, you know, 10, 20 years, whether that be through things like the independence movement, Corbyn, you know, Brexit or whatever. A lot of them have come into politics and um, with some of, some of them, there's a kind of belief that they've invented campaigning and that they are sort of telling us how it is, where what I'm trying to really say is that, you know, there's people who've been through titanic struggle. It might have been in a different era and a different time, but they've been through titanic struggle that's with huge personal sacrifice and... Uh, uh, and really, you know, if we're all going to learn from each other, and I think there's a lot we can learn from the new generation of campaigners, but I also think there's a lot they can learn from massive campaigns that have gone in the past. So 
some of these are absolutely you know gems of uh, interviews they're just fantastic and uh, you know speaking to people like Brian Fillon from uh, about the anti-apartheid movement or speaking to Dennis Skinner about the minor strike and these type of people uh, really getting quite an intimate inside view of their involvement and their commitment um, is tremendous so that will hopefully um, come together for next year because uh, and I'm and I've thoroughly enjoyed doing that, you know, speaking to some of the people like Liverpool Dockers and these kind of guys, absolutely titanic struggles and immense personal sacrifice that they've gone through just for something they absolutely were 100% committed to. Fantastic stuff. Sounds great as well. Um, well, thanks very much for coming on the pod, Neil. It was really nice to get a chat with you. Um, and I've enjoyed it a lot um, David I don't know if there's anything else that you want to say just that uh, I think that was a really a really worthwhile conversation covering a, a lot of ground um, and obviously with this podcast I mean we've got a few interviews coming up but um, especially since we're trying to put a load of stuff on YouTube at the moment we uh, we want folk to subscribe to the YouTube channel or subscribe on SoundCloud uh, if that's where you're listening to this and uh yeah i look forward to to more interesting conversations but i do hope they're all of this caliber because i i, I think that was a fascinating overview of like scottish politics present past etc i think it was really interesting so thanks a lot for that neil thanks a lot and keep uh, keep quoting the harry perkins look david <laughs> will do i'm in charge of it <laughs> okay thanks a lot Thank you. Tell me when you're ready to put it out and we can um, share it for you. Okay. Okay. Thanks very much, Neil. Thanks.